Hello, lovelies. I'm Valeria, and this is Have Murder, Will Travel. Hey guys, hope you had a good Halloween. If you're in America, we've now entered Thanksgiving time, which I honestly like better than Halloween because I'm a fan of any holiday where I won't be judged for just eating two plates of mashed potatoes throughout the day. Like, for real, probably just eat potatoes all day, and then I'll feel sick, but I'll love it. So last week we were in Romania. Hope everyone enjoyed our little jaunt through the woods. Not murdery, but it was Halloween, it was spooky. And who knows, I bet people have been murdered in those woods. And the funny thing is, right after I posted that episode, I found some other great sources on that forest. So we might have to go back. I know we made a pledge and said we were never entering that forest. We might have to virtually, via the podcast, go back one day, because there's some other scary shit going on in there. Anyway, we're going to let that go. Moving on. We're actually going to leave Europe this week. We've kind of been camped out there for the last few weeks. And, well, I guess not. We did Madagascar just a little bit ago. Excuse me. <laughs> the countries all run together after a while. Anyway... We are going back to Africa, East Africa for a change, and we are going to Kenya. We are going to be discussing the murder of Julie Ward. And guys, I read a book for this one, so you know I got some good shit. In fact, I have so much good shit, this is going to be another two-parter. I just can't help myself when I read a book. These these true crime books are where it's at. They're usually written by people who were there or investigative journalists. Like, high five to you. Um, The book I read is called A Death in Kenya, and it was written by Michael A. Hiltzik. I'll, I'll link the book in the show notes. There are a couple of other books on this case that I did not read. I would like to read a few of them, but they were kind of hard to find. They're a little older, so you know how books kind of stop getting printed if they're not, you know, Harry Potter. Fuck off, J.K. Rowling. Love Harry Potter, though. Uh But, you know, if it's not a huge, huge book, they sort of stop printing them. So I think a lot of them were out of print and were a little costlier, or you just couldn't find them. So I did get this one, read it, got a ton of info. I'm sure there's more in those other books. But yeah. Let's just let's just dive in. Let's get started. This case is is pretty wild. It involves a real shit police investigation, like if you can even call it an investigation, and potential government cover-ups. Ooh, intrigue. Don't worry, it's not quite as government corruption-y as Guatemala with Rodrigo Rosenberg. Go listen to that episode if you haven't. But this one's still pretty wild, right? Who's ready? Let's go. Julie Ann Ward was born April 30th. No, April 20th. I don't know. I clearly, so I have real shit handwriting, but I always write dates very clearly so I won't fuck them up. My brain saw it, saw it said April 20th. Still, I said April 30th. Talking with borrowed lips over here or something, like Mr. Potato Head. Honey, I think they put my wrong lips on. Let me try this again. <clears throat> Julie Ann Ward was born April 20th, 1960, 
in England. I don't know what that voice just was. It just seemed like it needed to happen. She had two younger brothers, Tim and Robert, and her parents are John and Janet Ward. Now, by all accounts, Julie had a very good life, didn't find much out about her childhood, but she grew up in a fairly well-to-do family. Her father was a successful hotelier. I like to say that. Hotelier just means he owned hotels, if you're not sure. Um, He had actually grown up poor, her father John. He and a friend had actually opened a coffee house together, and then it grew into this chain of three coffee houses and restaurants. And then he got some American funding and started Saxon Inn. Inn? I don't know why I just said Inn. Saxon Inn, so hotel chain. I thought this was kind of funny. It's not really related to the case, but one of the big selling points of the Saxon Inn was the fact that every room had its own bathroom, which apparently was quite rare at the time. Can you imagine now you go to a hotel and they're like, oh yeah, bathroom's at the end of the hall. You'd be like, excuse me, this isn't a hostel. It's the fucking Holiday Inn. Where's my bathroom? That's why, honestly, that's why I don't stay at real B&Bs. I don't want to share the shitter with strangers. Just seems gross. I don't actually want to share with anybody. But yeah, so he had this chain called Saxon Inn, Get Your Own Potty, and that's how he made a bunch of his money. And he did sell them. He was he retired for a little bit, but he got bored. So he opened another chain of hotels called Butterfly Inns, which sounds real cute, but it almost sounds too cute. And I don't know if I'd want to stay there. I'd be like, ugh, are there going to be butterflies everywhere? Not into that. But it was very successful as well. She grew up fairly, you know, well off. And now Julie and her mother were very close. Her mother, Janet, her mom actually said in multiple interviews after Julie died, she said that Julie was her best friend, which is just so sad. So she's dealing with the loss of her daughter, but also her best friend. It's like double mourning. I just, so yeah, this was a very tight knit sweet little family. No no childhood trauma or anything to speak of that I found. So after Julie graduated high school, her family actually moved to Bury St. Edward. Um, I need to learn how to speak. Bury St. Edmunds. Don't know why I said Edward. So it's borrowed lips again. Now this town was a fairly small town and they had this big white house on a bunch of acres. So, you know, very nice. And Julie, like I said, had already graduated high school, but she came with the family. She had decided she didn't want to go to college. She just, you know, like a lot of young people, I think she was just kind of exploring, seeing what was out there. Didn't know exactly what she wanted to do with her life, which I'm not 18 or 19 and I still don't know what I want to do with my life. So I get it, Julie. I'll get it. So in September 1979, Julie applied for a job at Roland Photo Typesetters. This was a small, fairly new typesetting business run by Ian Roland, and he hired Julie to run the big copier, which this is just so fucking like 70s, 80s. I would have thought even older, you know, where they had to actually have the typesets for the books and put them into the press. Obviously, with computers and digitization, they don't do that anymore. But I'm just picturing, it's like, what's your job? And it's like, I run the big copier. Ooh. It's like, now you just push a button and everything prints. <laughs> so I just, I thought that was kind of cute. Now, everyone at this office said that Julie had no sharp edges. She was sweet. She was nice. They said she was quietly efficient. Everyone said she was cool under pressure She was described as being very methodical. Her mother once said, if something at work required eight steps to complete it, you could be absolutely certain that Julie would complete each step 
carefully and correctly. I love that. I'm very much not Julie in this situation. I'll get my shit done, but I'm always looking to work smarter, not harder. So even if we're at work, if you were like, yeah, this takes eight steps, I would have been like, eh, watch me do it in five, motherfucker. So, you know, Julie's probably a better worker than me is what I'm getting at. <laughs> now, Roland Photo became quite the industry, quite the business. Um, It grew really quickly and in 1982, Julie became Ian Rowland's personal assistant. He said she threw herself body and soul into the job. Everyone said she often volunteered to stay late. She was polite, friendly. She didn't like the spotlight, so they said she was never the one to, like, organize office parties or events, but she was also not afraid to have the spotlight if she felt like she needed to, so she would suggest ideas and speak up in meetings but everyone said she did it in such an unassuming way. Like she wasn't rude. She wasn't, you know, boisterous. Not boisterous is the wrong word. My mind is going blank. I know everyone's listening, screaming the word at me. I do the same thing with podcasts. She wasn't, I don't want to say like rude or overbearing. She wasn't overbearing. She was very polite. That's still not the right word. I'm sorry. Any, it's not important. She was nice and unassuming when she would present her ideas and never talked down to people or talked over them or anything like that. And now, while she was hardworking, Julie seemed to be all about work and didn't have much of a social life. Like, she really didn't have any friends except her mother. There's nothing wrong with that. I hardly have any friends either, but it's like, you, you need a hobby or something, honey. She worked nine to nine so 12 hours a day, and she was often taking work home with her. I wish I could tell her that no job is worth all that, but I can't. So I'm going to tell all of you, listen to me right now. No job is paying you to work around the clock. When you're not at work, don't work. Cell phones make all these workplaces feel like they're entitled to you. They're not. End PSA. Now, in addition to her family, so she had her mom and she hung out with her family a lot. Julie also spent a lot of time with animals, which right away means she's a cool person because animals can always tell. Julie actually sponsored a 20-year-old horse named Barney who was sickly and had one eye. Like he'd been rescued and she sponsored him so he could have care and stuff. I'm like, Barney, I want to give him a hug. I mean, this was like 30 years ago, so Barney's no longer with us, but he sounds sweet. I would support a sickly one-eyed horse. Poor baby. Um, A cat also showed up at the office and everyone said Julie took care of it. And then the office, like I said, was growing. So they had to move to a bigger a bigger building. And I guess Julie was worried the cat wouldn't know where they went. So she just took the cat home. Like, oh, I can't abandon the kitty. And the family had two huskies and her and her mom actually used to take the huskies to sled dog events around the country, which I think is really fucking cool, first of all. Also, I love huskies. They're in my top three of dog breeds. I want all the huskies. Julie was also highly organized. Um, She was always the one so she wouldn't organize parties at work because she didn't like the spotlight, but she always organized the family events, you know, the birthday parties, the holidays. And at first I was like, what? But then I was like, no, I get that. I'll organize stuff for my family and I don't want to organize stuff for work because it's like strangers and you feel like you're being stared at and judged. So I kind of get that. Um, Everyone always said she always left a note saying where she was going, when she'd be back. 
She just sounds very, you know, caring, considerate. Honestly, other than the note thing, this kind of sounds like me. Like I said, I love organizing shit and trips. Like, you you tell me to plan something, and I'm planning the shit out of it. But I'm not leaving you a note about anything. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to read it anyway <laughs> if I wrote it. So, so, like I said, the business was booming had grown, moved into this new space. And this business now could actually typeset 1,200 books a year. And they had big contracts too. Like they printed Gideon Bibles and they had a contract with big publishers. I'm like, get it, Ian Rowland. And now Julie got a promotion too. And she had her own office. Like she's a boss bitch at this point. She was in charge of all the scheduling, which manuscripts would be typeset when, you know, if a rush job came in, she had to reorganize the whole schedule. Like she was in charge of all of that. And she'd been there about seven years at this point, And this bitch had really never taken a day off. Like she didn't use her vacation, I guess. She didn't get sick. Here, Here's another little tip for all of you though. Work-life balance is important. Take your days off. Just do it. You'll you'll feel better. So in 1986, Julie finally was like, okay, I'm gonna go on a vacation. I'm gonna go somewhere. And she had actually recently gotten into photography. Like she'd started taking pictures of the dogs and all the animals around. And she was really enjoying it. She had a very fancy camera she had bought. And she decided she wanted to go somewhere and take a lot of nature pictures, like a lot of pictures of animals. So she decided to go to Kenya. Now, her first trip was pretty uneventful by all accounts. It was a short, sort of closely supervised group safari thing. The book even said, you know, for most people, that's plenty. They go on this like one week or two week. I don't remember how long it was. They go on this short little trip through Africa. That's it. They tell people for the rest of their lives, I went on an African safari. Everyone's like, cool. But for Julie, this was different. This like awoke something in her. Her boss, Ian Rowland, said she had a new glow in her eyes. Like, I think she went there and just fell in love with the place, which makes what happens even sadder. So the very next year, Julie went back. Bitch hasn't taken a vacation in seven years, and now she's like, deuces. <laughs> this trip was actually longer than the first one, and everyone said when she came back, she was completely changed. Like, she talked about moving to Kenya. She couldn't stop talking about it. She was in love with that place. I want to go to Kenya. Maybe I'll fall in love with it. So then she signed up for her third trip because, like I said, she loves it and she's like, I gotta go again. Now, this trip was a five-month safari and it went all around Africa. Like, it wasn't just going to Kenya. The book broke down the whole itinerary. It's not really relevant to the case, so I didn't include it here. She's gonna end in Kenya, but basically they were just going all back and forth all across the country, the continent, I'm sorry. So, yeah, she was going on this big, long safari. It was five months. She actually told Ian Rowland before she left that she didn't know when she'd be back, though, because I guess the tour company always told people, you know, it could be a week or two longer if we get stuck somewhere, if we come across any mishaps. So always just don't book your return flight till you know when we're going to be back. And Ian Rowland said okay, and he said later that he really didn't expect to see her again. He just thought she was going to end up in Kenya and never come back. Now, he was right about not seeing her again, but it wasn't because she moved to Kenya. Julie never returned from this trip to Africa because Julie died in Africa. Dun, dun, dun. This third trip of hers, they left on February 8th, 1988. Like I said, by all accounts, it was a great tour. If you're really interested in the details of the 
tour, go pick up the book, A Deaf in Kenya. It went into great detail. Like there were a couple of mishaps, like one time they got stuck in a river, had to spend some extra days there. You know, nothing super noteworthy. And again, nothing that's super relevant to this case. And honestly, it just sounds like a really fun time, a really fun tour. I wish I could go off to African safari for five months. Sounds fucking great. And Julie took tons of pictures just was making friends in the group, you know, having a grand old time. She's like, what, 28 at this point? She's living her life. She turned 28 on the trip. That's what it was. Yeah. So, you know, she's just having a grand ass time. Now, this tour ended in Kenya at the property of Paul and Natasha Weld Dixon. These people are very important to the case. So just keep that in mind, especially Paul. Paul was from England. So just like Julie, he had moved from England, although Julie hasn't moved yet at this point. He was from England, and I guess because the people that ran this tour company, I think they knew him or something, but the tour would always end at his property, and some of the tour people would camp on his property for a little bit before they left. Most of them went to a hotel, booked their flight, went home. So everyone kind of dissipated after the tour ended. A couple people went on some more tours, but Julie stuck around. Julie ended up camping on the property. They said that was fine, and then she started taking care of all the animals. They really got to know her. Like, they even trusted her to watch her watch the house and the animals when they went on trips. Like, she would house sit and shit. So, they they were really lovely. They're, they're the sweet old couple. I'm going to post a picture of Paul. Just a nice-looking old man. I'm sure he was... I'm sure she sort of looked at them as, like, surrogate parents in this strange land or something like that. And they've even said, because I think they did love her, they trusted her and all that, and they've actually said, since all this happened, that they will never befriend another young traveler because it was too hard for them. Like, that is so sad. This nice older couple was just being cute and sweet, and it all got ripped to shit because some murderous shit gibbon is out there just thinking it's cool to kill people. Like, don't ruin the world for the rest of us, fucker. So after a while, Julie was like, man, I'm kind of getting tired of camping on your lawn. I need something a little bit more permanent. So Paul had a neighbor named Doug Morey, and Doug actually happened to have his guest house open for rent. So Julie moved in there. Doug was an American pilot who flew for Air Kenya. So all these people are, you know, expatriates. Julie was really seeming to thrive there. She was sending letters and postcards back home. Everyone said she seemed like excited. They could just feel her enthusiasm through the letters, through the paper. She was starting to come into her own. She was making friends. Like there was, I guess, a whole group of kind of young expatriates and she would go hang out with this big group of people all the time. And Doug, he actually hosted Saturday volleyball parties, and she often attended. I mean, kind of hard not to. She lives in his guest house. But yeah, so she was really coming into her own. Like, this is probably where she was supposed to be all along. Now, she brought a man to one of these volleyball parties. This man was Glenn Burns. I'm gonna say it right now. I think Glenn Burns was a hottie. I couldn't find a picture of him, but in my mind, smoke show. Because Glenn was Australian, and he had a PhD in zoology, and he had spent 18 months traveling South Asia and now Kenya, and he was also going to other parts of Africa. Now, like I said, couldn't find a picture of him, but I feel like most Australians are hot, and he's a traveling zoologist. Like, 
clearly a babe, clearly a hunk. I'm here for it. Julie and the hot, hot Australian, like, get it. And Julie actually introduced Glenn to Paul, you know, the sweet old man, Paul Walt Dixon. And Glenn actually started camping on Paul's property like Julie used to do. Now, while she was hanging out vibing in Kenya, Julie, you know, wanted to be able to get around, I guess. So she had bought a tan Suzuki Jeep with four-wheel drive. Now, by all accounts, this wasn't the best car, but you know, it did the job. It did what she needed to do. She was mostly just zipping around town anyway, so it was fine. She didn't need an army tank or anything. Um, And she was actually, so she's been hanging out here for a little while, and now she's like, okay, I should probably, probably go home, but she was telling everybody she was coming back. So she actually did. She booked a trip home. She booked her plane flight home for September 10th. But here's the thing. Julie wasn't just hopping on a plane Kenya to England because apparently, I don't know if it still is, but apparently at this time, Kenya to England was a pretty normal flight. Like, I guess there were a lot of them. It wasn't hard to get. You know, it wasn't like a, we only fly this twice a year. It was a pretty normal place to fly. So, but that's not what Julie booked. No, no, no. She still has this sort of African adventurous spirit. So her trip back was this whole fucking itinerary all across the continent, like zigzagging all over and getting on small planes that only flew once in a while. Like she had mapped this whole thing out. She had it planned, which that's the type of vacation I would plan. I love that. But I just realized it's probably even harder because this was the 80s. She can just get on Google and look all this shit up. She was probably having to call people on the phone. Oh, hate talking on the phone. Don't ever call me. So and like I said, she had made friends with the sweet Well Dixon couple and they were like, hey, we'll drive you to the airport that morning for your flight. And so the plan was she was going to stay with them the night before and she was going to cook them dinner, which I thought was so sweet. Like, come stay at my house and cook me dinner, bitch. <laughs> now, before Julie left, you know, to go home, she wanted to get a few more pictures of animals. And around this time of year, August, September, there is the great wildebeest migration, which if you don't know what a wildebeest is, look it up. They're huge. They're really kind of scary. They're what killed Mufasa in The Lion King. Okay, I don't know if I can ever forgive them for that. Just right off the bat. There might be some nice wildebeest out there, but I don't know. I'm just going by what I saw in The Lion King. Not cool. So yeah, there's this great migration. And from what I was reading, it happens pretty much around the Tanzania-Kenya border, I believe. I didn't read too much into it. But yeah, Julie wanted to go see the wildebeest migration, take some pictures. So her and two girlfriends were going to go the weekend before she was going to leave. They were going to go to the wildlife preserve, the park, whatever it's called. And they were going to see this wildebeest. She was going to take pictures. They were only going to be gone like two days and they were going to come back. And then she was going to start getting all her shit together. Well, at the last minute, the two girlfriends canceled. I don't know why, but I guess they couldn't go. So she started asking a couple other friends and... Nobody could go. And she was like, fuck, you know, I really, really want to go get some more pictures of these wildebeest. So she asked some of the mutual acquaintances, what about sexy zoologist Glenn Burns over there? Is he safe to travel with? Like, can I trust him? Like, if I travel with him? And apparently everyone said yes. They were like, yeah, he is a nice guy. Nothing to worry about. And she was like, okay, cool. So she invited Glenn and he was like, yeah, that sounds fun. I'll go with you. So the plan was to leave on Friday the 2nd and come back Sunday the 4th. Now remember, she's leaving the following weekend. So like I said, short little trip, then she's going to start getting all her shit together. 
and she's going to be gone. Now, I don't know if Glenn had a car or what. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he did. Either way, they're taking Julie's tan Suzuki Jeep. That's what they're taking into the park. Now, like I said, it wasn't the best car. I already said that. She didn't pay a lot for it. And also, apparently, she wasn't uh, so hip on keeping up with the maintenance on the car because apparently, I guess it was like ridiculously expensive in Kenya. I guess a lot of parts had to be brought in or something. So I feel that. I mean, who here hasn't driven with their check engine light on for a little longer than they should have, right? We've all been there. So I feel her. So apparently, the tires were basically bald. And right before the trip, the car was making a weird noise and she was like, fuck, I guess I should get this looked at. I wrote this down because I don't know anything about cars. It apparently was a broken differential linkage between the front and rear tires. To that I say, huh? Well, apparently it has something to do with the four-wheel drive and instead of paying to fix it, because like I said, it was probably astronomically expensive, the mechanic was like, well, I'll just disconnect it and this will just be a two-wheel drive instead of a four-wheel drive. Julie was like, sounds good. Now, two-wheel drive would have been perfectly acceptable if they were just going to be chilling around town like she'd been doing, but they're planning to go into this wilderness park where she probably should have four-wheel drive. So, this isn't the best already, right? Trip's already not looking so great. So that morning, Julie got up, went to leave, and before she left, she left her landlord, Doug Morey, the following note. Because remember, she always leaves a note. This is what her note said. Good morning. Hope I didn't wake you with my early departure. Gone down to the Mara for a couple of days. Be back Sunday evening sometime. If you fly over a little Suzuki stuck in the mud down there, give us a wave. Please tell Chumley and Dale I'll be back soon and give them a cuddle for me. See you soon, Julie. In case you couldn't figure it out, Chumley and Dale were his dogs. This is such a sweet note. She just seems delightful. Like, first of all, she had to be like, oh yeah, don't forget to tell the dogs I'll be back soon. I love when people address letters to dogs and cats and stuff. I'm like, they're here too, don't be rude. So I'm like, you're sweet. And I also love how she's like, if you fly over a little Suzuki stuck in the mud, give us a wave. I would have been like, yeah, if you see me stuck in the mud, land the plane and fly me the fuck out of there. But she's just very sweet and is like, yeah, just give us a little wave from your plane. So yeah, just a delightful young lady. I'm I'm here for it. So her and Glenn, they went to the Masa Mara Game Reserve. Masa, the Masa, fuck off. I don't remember how to say it. Hold on. I feel like I have to look. Can I pause this? Pause. Okay, I'm back. It's Masai Mara. I swear I looked it up earlier and then whenever I went to say it just now, it just flew out of my brain and I couldn't remember and I didn't want to fuck it up too much for you guys. That's the first time I've paused a recording while recording, so whoop whoop, something dangerous has happened now. So anyway, they went to the Masai Mara game reserve. Masai was that is actually a um guess an ethnicity or a tribe in Kenya. And I don't I don't know about Mara. I guess it's just the place. A lot of the book called it just the Mara. That's how a lot of people refer to it. I think Julie even said that in her letter. Let me see. Yeah, going down to the Mara. So I'm going to just be calling it the Mara, but it's the Masai Mara um, part. It's a game reserve. It's actually a little smaller than a lot of... I do have borrowed lips. It's a lot smaller than a lot of the other safari parks in Africa, but it's really close to the city. It's close to Nairobi, so it is popular with tourists because I guess they can stay in town and then get to there in just like a little bit, have a couple days in the park, and then go back to the big city. So her and Glenn 
They arrived there around 4 p.m. Their entrance is recorded at that gate, and then the two of them drove to Sand River Gate. Sand River is like a campground, like a little camping area, and they set up their tents, and that's where they camped for the night. And then the next morning, left the tents set up because they're coming back, of course. They drove out across the park, went out on their little safari, saw lots of game. I'm assuming Julie took lots of pictures because she brought her fancy camera. They end up hanging out at one of the lodges in the park because, of course, there's campsites and there's lodges because I ain't camping. I think we've covered that. So they hung out in one of the lodge pools. And basically, it just sounds like they're, you know, having a really lovely day. So they left the lodge pool to go back to Sand River Camp around 2.30. While heading back to the camp, they turned off the main road. I never was quite sure why they did this. Maybe they saw something or they thought it was a shortcut. I'm not sure. My advice to you is never turn off the main road. Haven't you ever seen Scooby-Doo? Every time they end up on the off the main road, that's when they run into the monsters. Just stay on the main fucking road. So, of course, they get off the main road and they immediately get lost. Because, I mean, you're out in the middle of the African bush, like a wasteland desert almost. Like, I can't. No. That's why you don't do that shit. Um, so they decide to turn around, of course. But when Julie went to turn around, the Jeep stalled. Like, just died. Wouldn't start. Like, of all the places to break down, right? Nowhere's good, but broke down in a game park off the main drag in the middle of Kenya. Seemed like one of the worst places to break down because they can't really get out and walk because they're too far from the lodge or the camp. And don't forget, there are wild animals out here. There's wildebeest and wildebeest have gored people in the past. Um, there's big cats here. I think there's hyenas. The point is, this is not the area where you just go, hey, I'm just going to walk back up to the lodge. No, you're not. So they're just kind of stuck chilling in this Jeep when luckily for them, a van full of European tourists came by. And this van of tourists was driven by a young Englishman named Stephen Watson. Now I did see a picture of him. He pretty cute too. And he was like, hey, I'm taking this tour group out. You know, I have to take them like Obviously, this is my job. They paid for this tour. But if you're still here on the way back, I'll I'll tow you guys up to the to the lodge. Well, they were still there because <laughs> I guess nobody else came by. So he towed them up to the Mara Serena Lodge. And we're going to see at this lodge, Stephen was pretty smitten with Julie, like was all goo goo. I'm going to obviously post some pictures of her. She is a very pretty girl. And she also just seems to have this great zest for life. So, I mean, I'd probably be smitten with her, too. She sounds great. So, the lodge didn't have any tents because, you know, it's late at night. They weren't expecting more guests. But Stephen had some spares because I'm sure as a tour guide, he probably brings lots of extra shit. So, he was like, hey, yeah, you guys can borrow some of mine. Julie and Glenn pitched one tent that night. To that, I say, get it, Julie. And I'm just speculating. And this also has no bearing on the case, and maybe nothing happened. But I like to think that on one of her last nights on Earth, she was boning a sexy zoologist. So that's what I'm going to think. Get it, girl. So the next morning, some mechanics at the lodge looked at the Jeep, and they were like, yeah, you need a new fuel pump. 
Well, of course, they're out in the middle of this fucking game reserve. There's not a fucking auto zone right next door. So she has to radio Paul Well Dixon, the nice man who let him camp on the yard, of course. And she had to use a radio because there's the 80s. There aren't really cell phones. And even if there was, there wouldn't be service all the way out fucking here. So she radios to him and she's like, hey, can you send a fuel pump on a plane? Because planes would land in this park. And he was like, yeah, I can, but it'll be the next day because I think the planes didn't land very often. So they're stuck at Mara Serena Lodge for the day and another night. Now, Glenn apparently was pretty annoyed with this. I don't think he was so much annoyed that the car broke down like shit happens, but apparently he had um some kind of lecture he wanted to attend in Nairobi, probably some kind of sciencey thing because he's hot and smart. And it was the next day. And now, of course, he's going to miss it because they're they're stuck here. And Julie, you know, she's so sweet, always thinking of others. She told him, she was like, just get on a plane when it lands here, you know, just fly back and I can go get the tents tomorrow. Like, it's not a big deal. I can take down two tents and drive back. I'll see you, you know, sometime tomorrow after they fix the car. And Glenn was like, okay, cool. Now, later on, a lot of people, especially her dad, were kind of like critical of him and kind of saying that he was a jerk for for leaving her. And like some people were kind of say, not saying it was his fault, but implying like maybe what happened wouldn't have happened if he was there. And I really think this is kind of unfair. I don't think Glenn did anything wrong. It's not like he left her stranded on the side of the road. You know, that'd be completely different. They were at a lodge. She was around a lot of people. She was going to be driving on a perfectly paved road that lots of other cars drove on. I mean, she's an adult. She knows how to drive. She's been in Kenya by herself for like two months at this point. So I think the criticism of Glenn Burns is a little unfounded. Let me know what you think. But yeah, I I don't think he did anything wrong and I don't blame him for any of this stuff. So that day, like I said, Julie's stuck at the lodge. So she's hanging out with Stephen, who, like I said, is totally gaga for Julie. They were apparently hanging out by the pool and just talking. Like I said, he's English, just like her. And she was, I guess, telling him all her plans, telling him how she was leaving soon. And this boy begged her not to leave Kenya. Like, that's how smitten with her he was. It's been like 24 hours and he's like, baby, don't go. This is like a romantic movie. It's not a romantic movie, unfortunately. But Julie actually told him that she was going home, but she was only going home for a little bit. And she'd probably be back in November or December. So like I said, she was planning on coming back, probably for good. And Stephen was like, okay, you know, I'll miss you, blah, blah, blah. Well, that next day, he was actually leaving with his tour group um, to go to this place called Lake Navasha. Navasha? I should have looked that one up, but I'm not going to. I kind of don't care. <laughs> it's not that important to the case. Um, Apparently, this lake has like a bunch of hippos and flamingos. It's just a real cool hip happening place. For some reason, I'm thinking of the beginning of Horton Hears a Who when he's like in the heat of the day in the cool of the pool. I feel like this is the pool. It's a lake, but this is the pool Horton was hanging in. But yeah, he's taking his group of tourists there the next day and he asked Julie if she would meet him there in a few days. He's like, okay, I know you're leaving, but come on, baby, give me another chance. I got to see you again. Like I said, very romantic. And she actually told him she might. She's like, you know, I got to get back. I'm a couple days behind. Got to get my visa and shit all together. Get packed up to leave. But yeah, if I'm all caught up on stuff, I'll, I'll come see you. I'm like, get it, girl. Like, 
Like, I'm just picturing the movie of their of their romance. And, you know, they have this beautiful time at the lake and then something comes between them. Haven't figured out what yet. And you think they're never going to see each other again. But then at the end, they come back together and they're in love. Spoiler alert, that is, that is not what happens here. I'm sorry. So that night, Julie was like, I'm sick of tent camping, whatever. I'm going to book a room at the lodge. So she did. Apparently, the room had two beds, and she invited Stephen into her room that night to share the bed, which he did. Now, a lot gets said about this later on, too. Some people were kind of besmirching her character a bit and suggesting she was with all these different men. For his part, Stephen maintained that they did not sleep together. He said he slept in the spare bed, and that was that. But my thing is, even if they did, who fucking cares? I don't give a shit if she fucked the entire population of Kenya. That has nothing to do with her being murdered. Not relevant at all. It just, it pisses me off. Because they always say shit like this about ladies, like women. They never say shit about this about guys. And even if they did, it's still not relevant. Yeah, I don't care if you've fucked two people or 200 people. What the fuck does that have to do with you as a person or you as a having a right to be alive? Not a damn thing. If you couldn't tell, I got a little fired up there. <laughs> so the next morning, Stephen had to leave with his tour group. So I'm just picturing their, their beautiful goodbye. I don't know if this is what happened, but I just picture them you know, with the sun rising and being like, so I'll see you at the lake and her being like, we'll see, while secretly being like, oh, I'm coming to that lake, baby. I just picturing it being very, very cinematic. So he left. So now she's at the lodge alone again. She's got to wait for the fuel pump. And while she's waiting, she meets another man. This man's name was David Weston. David was an American hot air balloon pilot. She is A, not only is she meeting just all sorts of men who, and I'm like, go for it, girl. But B, all these men just sound awesome. She's got a fucking hunky Australian zoologist. She's got an English tour guide. And now she's got an American hot air balloon pilot. I'm like, get her, girl. I want whatever she's got. So like Stephen, David was also smitten with Julie. He talked to her all day. Like he said he saw an attractive blonde in the lodge. So he was with her all day hanging out. And he even was trying to help the mechanics with the fuel pump because they were putting it in and it the car still wasn't starting. They couldn't figure out why. And then him and the mechanics finally figured out that there was a loose wire. And once they put the like fixed the loose wire, the car started Started up. So the fuel pump was actually fine all along. It was just this fucking wire, which like that totally sucks. Now she's wasted a whole other day because now it's late in the day again. She can't drive back now. So David asked her to dinner and they had dinner together and they made arrangements for him to take her on a hot air balloon ride in the morning. Not a solo one. It was with some other tourists, but still I'm like, get it, girl. I go places all the time alone and this shit never happens to me. Like this case has given me a complex. Also, little side note, I went on a hot air balloon ride a couple years ago when my grandma turned 80 and it was fun, but those things are not romantic. That flame is loud as fuck and if you turn it off, you start going down so you can't turn it off for very long. So I don't know why they got this reputation as being romantic. They're fucking not. If you think it's romantic, don't go. But that night, David said he walked her to her room, walked her to her door. He did not go inside the room. Again, this came up in court, so that's the only reason I'm mentioning it. I don't really give a shit. Like I said, what consenting adults do is nobody's fucking business. So the next morning, she went on their little balloon ride, and after the balloon ride, she left. 
the Mars Serena Lodge got in her Jeep, packed up, and apparently David tried to talk her out of it, like not leaving so much like Stephen did. He was just like, I don't think it's safe for you to be driving across the park by yourself. Like, are you sure you should do this? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. And he even told her, he's like, look, a bunch of people are leaving the lodge today. Why don't you wait till all of them go and you can drive along in like a caravan back to Nairobi. Nairobi. <laughs> I said that all fucked up. Back to Nairobi. Um, but she was like, no, I can't do that. I'm not going straight back. I've got to go to Sand River Camp and get the two tents. Now, honestly, at this point, I'd be like, fuck those tents. I'm going back to Nairobi. Like, I'll buy you a new fucking tent, Glenn. But she is not me, as we've clearly established. So she left for Sand River Camp. She's like, nope, gotta go get the tents. Then I'm gonna drive to Nairobi by myself. I'll be fine. When David last saw her, she was wearing red flip-flops, jeans, and a t-shirt. The next part of her day and everything after remains a mystery. We're pretty sure we know what happened, but some people, in particular her father, think this is not what happened. I'm gonna tell you what we're pretty sure happened, but don't worry, we're gonna get into all the theories and such as well. So we believe Julie went to Sand River Camp. She arrived sometime in the afternoon. She took down the two tents and she left. Now, on her way out of Sand River Camp, she did get stopped by the gate clerk. The gate clerk's name is David Nochko, and he becomes very important to this case, so just keep keep him in mind. He stopped her because the tents had been there a couple extra days, so he was like, yeah, you gotta pay more. So she did, and also, there's a logbook, and you have to sign out when you're leaving the camp. That's how they keep track. So she signed it and left at 2.37 p.m. She was never seen alive again. And like I said, David Notchko becomes very important, as does that logbook and that timeline. Just keep that in mind. It's going to come up in, a, in part two. I do want to say very quickly, though, that David, we'll get more into it, like I said, but he's treated very badly by the press. And I think it's a little unfair. Um, You might disagree. We'll see. But yeah, other than the killer or killers, David Notchko was the last person to see Julie Ward alive. So here we are back in Nairobi. Paul Well Dixon was concerned because Julie hadn't shown up because, you know, he sent her that fuel pump and now she should be there. And of course, she's supposed to come spend the night at their house, make them dinner, and then they were going to drive her to the airport for her flight. So she's not there. So Paul's like, okay, this isn't like Julie. So he calls up his neighbor, her landlord, Doug Morey. Now, Doug was not worried. Doug was like, eh, she's young and fancy free. She probably met up with some friends, which I could see that for some 20-somethings. But Julie was not the type to run off with friends and not let someone know. Remember, she always left a note when she left places, like she left this dude a note. And now he's like, must have gone off with friends. Now, Doug does turn out to be a good guy, and he helps with the search and everything, but at this moment, I'm just like, my dude, read the room. Shouldn't just go off with friends. But anyway, he's like, eh, I, I think she's fine, but I'll, I'll call a friend of mine. I have a friend, because, you know, Doug's a pilot, so he knows other people. He's like, I've got a friend that's a balloonist in the park. So, like, hot air ballooning. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll call him. Now, this friend checked and said that Julie had checked out of the park with a large group of people. So Doug's like, see, told you, she, large group, she obviously met with some friends. And Paul was just like, no, 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 that's, Paul wasn't buying it. Because Paul was like, no, bitch, that's not how Julie is. And also Paul's like, no, she's about to leave Kenya. Like she's supposed to get on a plane 
on the 10th. And now it's much later than it was supposed to be. It's like two days later. It's the 6th or the 7th at this point. You know, he's like, he's like, she wouldn't have just gone off. But Doug didn't know about that whole complicated zigzaggy itinerary I told you about she had planned. He thought she was just flying Kenya to England. And he was like, um, no. And he told Paul, he's like, the flights from Kenya to England run all the time. She can easily just reschedule the flight. So maybe she decided to stick around for a few days to hang out. It's fine. But he was like, I'll still go check her room. Like, you seem really concerned. I'll go check. So he goes to the guest house and he found her to-do list because she's a big list person. Same. And he also found her itinerary. And this is when he realized it was not just a flight back to London, but like I said, was all these complicated flights that flew once a week, some even less. And he was like, oh, you know, this took some planning. Maybe something is wrong. So he called his balloonist friend back and was like, hey, are you sure Julie left with a big group? And this guy checked again. And yeah, it turns out there were actually no records at the gate he had said she left through. Oops, guess there's no record of her leaving the park after all. I don't know who his balloonist friend is, but he honestly kind of sucks. Like, did you even check or did you just make that shit up when I called earlier? Like, what the fuck? And now I thought this next part was kind of crazy, so I had to share it. So all this is going on in Nairobi. You know, the Weld Dixons and Doug Morey are starting to realize Julie might be missing. They're kind of figuring out what they should do. Meanwhile, her parents are all the way back in London thousands and thousands of miles away. And her dad got a weird feeling, like woke up, had a weird feeling about Julie. He said he couldn't explain what it was, but he just knew he had to call her, like he needed to call her. I mean, parents' intuition, man, it's a thing. I believe it. He knew. So he called the Weld Dixon house and he got Natasha and he was like, hey, yeah, you know, is Julie there? I want to talk to Julie. And Natasha said, we're trying to locate her. Can you imagine the helplessness this man must have felt? You're half a world away, and then you find out your child might be missing. Like, I don't care that she's 28. That's your baby. And what are you supposed to do? Like, I said, you're thousands of miles away. Ugh, this poor man. And the next morning was the day that Julie was supposed to be flying out of Kenya. Like, she's supposed to be gone at this point. So Paul went to the airport. Julie was still on the flight list, but of course she never boarded the flight. This man checked the entire airport for her, and then he searched the entire parking lot for her car. Like, he did the damn thing. And I just, I love all these sweet old men who she befriended. Cross-generational friendships can be so pure, and I love it. So Paul, he's he's really starting to worry. He's like, Some, something's wrong here. So he calls another neighbor of his. This neighbor's name is Perez Olindo. Now, Perez Olindo happened to be the director of the Department of Wildlife Conservation and Management. Because, you know, Paul's like all kinds of connected. It's like not in a scary mafia way, but like in a useful game reserve way. Go, Paul. So even though he's the director, Perez Olindo couldn't contact the park late at night. Like, apparently the radios are just turned off at a certain time, and you can't call in or out, which sounds fucked up to me. Like, I get being out there and disconnecting and all that, but there should be a way to contact the rest of the world in case of an emergency. Like, what? But okay. So this man, Perez, though, he's like, hey, I'll take you to the park first thing in the morning. 
So Paul and Perez fly to the park the very next morning, do a little digging, and they learn that, you know, Julie did check into the park on Friday. They learn about her spending those two nights at the Mara Serena Lodge. And when they go to the Sand River camp and they look at the the logbook, because remember she had to sign out, David Notchko kept that logbook, charged her extra. She signed out, has the time she left. Well, they notice when they start looking at the book that some of the pages had been skipped or more like out of order because what I was gathering was the pages are like numbered because I think they would like rip part of it off as your ticket or whatever. The numbers would match then they knew which ticket you had and they noticed that the numbers were out of order like some had been skipped. And this is when David Notchko first gets a little fishy, a little suspicious over here because, you know, he's the last one that that's our and he said, you know, she signed the book, 2.37 p.m., and now they're like, okay, well, why are some of these pages skipped? Why are they out of order? Clearly something's amiss. And he's like, oops, must have skipped a few pages by mistake. Oh, just skipped a few by mistake? Okay, that will get questioned extensively later, don't worry. Paul actually had a plane take him all over the park. He's like, I got to see if I see anything, but he didn't see anything. He didn't see anybody walk in. He didn't see like a body. He didn't see the Jeep. Like he, he didn't see anything. Meanwhile, Julie's dad, John Ward, was on his way to Kenya. Like he got off the phone with Natasha when she was like, we're trying to locate her. And that boy got on a plane. I'm like, yes, daddy. I don't even want to imagine his head though going on that plane. Like, your daughter's half a world away, having the time of her life, and now the first time you're getting on a plane to go to this land she loves is to search for her while she is missing. And trust me, as this case goes on, this man goes through it. I mean, her whole family obviously goes through it, but this man, he is in Kenya over and over and over, and he's the only reason this case got any real attention. He's the only reason we're talking about it now. That was my long way of saying we love John Ward. He's what every father should be, and he needs like a million hugs. Also, I'm going to post a few pictures of him, and I think he looks like John Goodman. Not now so much because he's quite old, but at this time, late 80s, early 90s, I think he looks like John Goodman. And I love John Goodman because, I mean, duh, it's John Goodman. Also, John Goodman is from my neck of the woods, so... We love a hometown boy. Anyway, I'll post a few pics. Let me know if you see the John Goodman in in him like I do. Maybe I'm imagining it. So her father arrived in Kenya and he met Paul and Natasha. They introduced him to her landlord, Doug Morey. And Doug was like, yeah, we need a single engine plane to search because that's the type of plane that'll be able to fly low and slow. And that's what we need right now. And Doug knows what he's talking about because Doug's a fucking pilot. So, I mean, everyone's like, okay, yeah, if you say so. Now, unfortunately, Doug was already scheduled to fly for Air Kenya the next day, so he wouldn't be able to fly her dad, but he did hook him up with another pilot. So, like I said, Doug Morey's a great guy, too. All these people are just coming out and helping her dad, and I love it. It shows you what kind of person Julie was, that all these people are concerned about her and willing to help look for her. Like, that's so sweet. And then her dad also met Stephen Watson who was, you know, smitten. The way they met was actually just happenstance. It was at the embassy. Stephen was there to get a cholera booster because, you know, I guess 
cholera is a thing in Kenya, or at least it was. And John was there to talk to some higher ups about Julie. And Stephen actually heard someone call him Mr. Ward. And he was like, are you Julie Ward's dad? And that's how they met. And it's actually, it's kismet because Stephen ends up helping out a lot. So cool. Thanks, universe. Sometimes it works out. So John goes out with that pilot he hired. They flew over that park for eight hours that day, just back and forth flying all over. They didn't see anything. Like, can you imagine what's going through this man's mind? Like, normally a flight over an African wildlife park would be an amazing experience, right? You've probably seen giraffes and lions, maybe, or wildebeest. You're just seeing all this stuff and then just the landscape and you can't enjoy any of it because you're you're looking for your child, your only daughter. Ugh, I just can't. The book was even going on a little bit about how, you know, he would look out at this expanse and he just didn't understand it because, you know, his daughter was in love with this place. And of course, this poor man, when he looks at it, he probably just sees the land that took his daughter. So I get it. I wouldn't love it either if I was him. So that night, John had dinner with Doug, the landlord, and... Stephen, the wannabe boyfriend, and Doug was like, in order to cover the whole park, you're going to need about six planes with three observers in each plane. And her dad was like, great, that's what I'm going to fucking do then. Because of course her dad's got money, so that's the only reason this is getting any, anything's happening with it. So the next morning he arrived at the airport, and I guess Paul and Natasha had said they'd gather people to, you know, look from the planes. And they had gathered 50 volunteers. Like, that's how great she was. That's how much people liked her. 50 people were willing to give up their day and search for her. Love that. But of course, they didn't have enough room for 50 people because John had only been able to secure five planes. So they had to send most of the volunteers home, which, you know, kind of sucks. But thanks for coming. Sorry, we don't have enough airplane space. So this next part is so fucked up, I had to include it. Her dad said that, you know, they're boarding these five planes. And and as they're boarding the planes, they passed a police hangar and it was full of police planes. And yet the police were just sitting there doing nothing. It's like, um, excuse me, police, isn't finding missing people your fucking job? And we're going to see in this case, there is an astounding, disgusting level of disinterest. And I want to slap all these Kenyan police. I really do. Just want to get a big giant like the hamburger helper hand. Whack. All at one time. So this search party sets out. And of course, there are other planes on the park as well. It's not just these six. These six are the search party ones, but the tours are still going on and stuff. So anyway, this guy named Andy Stepanovich was flying a game counting plane that day. And you know, all these tour planes and stuff were doing their jobs, but they'd also been told like, hey, we're looking for this Jeep. We're looking for a girl. If you see anything, you know, radioed over. So Andy radioed in and he said, yeah, there's a tan Jeep stuck in a gully and on the roof of the tan Jeep in mud, someone's written SOS. In case you've forgotten, Julie was driving a tan Jeep. So her dad is like, oh shit. Well, planes couldn't land in this gully, so he had to be driven there. So this other pilot named Sebastian Tham drove her father, John Ward, to the Jeep. They arrive at the gully and they saw that three of the tires were sunken in the mud and the fourth one 
was up in the air. Like this thing was stuck so badly. One tire was just dangling in the air and the other three were stuck. They said they were stuck like all the way up to the wheel well. Like they were fucking stuck. But the Jeep was locked. They didn't see Julie, didn't see anyone around. So Sebastian actually broke a window so they could get inside the Jeep. Because, you know, they don't know if Julie's inside the Jeep. Is she in some kind of distress? There are clues. What's going on? And inside the Jeep, they found all her stuff. Like the tents were still in there, provisions, there was food, beer, toilet paper. Her tennis shoes were in there. Also, she had maps, a map of the Mara and a map of Kenya still in there. So if Julie walked off on her own, she was still wearing her flip-flops and she didn't take anything with her except her camera because her camera wasn't found at the scene. So to me, that seems like she didn't just walk off by herself. Like, she would have at least changed her shoes, right? And she left all her stuff. Like, if she thought, oh, no, I got to hike back, I think she would put on her shoes and also take in some food or a tent or something. And now, later, John and Sebastian both testified that when they came upon the Jeep, there were no footprints anywhere around the Jeep except for the ones they were making. Now, this is strange, too, because if Julie had walked off, she would have left footprints. But anybody that walked off would have left footprints, right? They said there were also no tire tracks anywhere. So how did the Jeep get there? The questions begin. Now on the ridge of the goalie, up a little ways, they did find the remnants of a small fire. They said the fire was too small to cook anything and was likely only used for light or warmth. Warmth. That was hard to say. Used for light or keeping warm there. <laughs> I'm learning all these words I can't say. It's fabulous. So the two of them arrived at this Jeep, they said, around 1130. And they were there for about an hour looking around. Like they were looking for clues. They didn't want to go too far away from the Jeep because, again, wild animals. So they were staying pretty close. But they were around this Jeep for about an hour, they said. So after they'd been looking around for about an hour... Two Land Rovers pulled up. Ten guys in civilian dress get out, one guy in uniform, and these 11 dudes just trample all over the potential crime scene. No regard to preserving the scene, which, like, I've seen enough law and order to know that's not what you do at a crime scene. I've never been at a crime scene, but I watch law and order, so I'm basically an expert. So these guys, they take all the stuff out of the Jeep, except her dad was holding her binoculars and her map, and they didn't ask him for them, so he didn't give them to them. But yeah, these people, they just take everything out of the Jeep. They weren't, I don't think they were wearing gloves. They weren't logging stuff. They weren't preserving it in little individual baggies. They're just grabbing shit. They're trampling everywhere. That's great. So Sebastian's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take the helicopter further down along this gully, see if I see anything. You're going to get in this other plane, go up over the hill, see if you see anything. Her dad was convinced, so he got in the plane, and he said while he was in the plane, he saw more people, maybe rangers, he's not sure, walking around the jeep. So just more people. How many people you need trample in this crime scene? Now, the day's coming to an end. Everyone's about to land, call it a day. When the call you never want to hear came over the radio, a body had been found. So John lands and he gets in a car with her would-be boyfriend, Stephen, and they go out with some rangers 
to go find this body. But the rangers, they got lost and turned around because this part of the park is like wild and the land is very isolated. So like people don't go here. It's a very remote part of the park. Very easy to get lost. So yeah, just keep that in mind. You'd have to really know this this park and this land to find this spot and to get back from this spot where this body is. So these rangers are like, yeah, we're lost. We got to go to Makari Game Post nearby. And from the game post, we can radio for you a helicopter. Makari Game Post is also going to be very important. So yeah, just... Just keep these things in mind. Makari Game Post is a post that the rangers live in, and it's extremely isolated. So isolated, in fact, that her father, John, said he actually had the thought that you could hold someone here for days and no one would know. Also, Makari Game Post is within walking distance of where the Jeep was found and also within walking distance of where the body was found, if you know where you're going. Do with that what you will. Just just some things to remember about this place. So John radios for a helicopter, and while he's waiting for the helicopter, he noticed a cell battery on a coin in the sun, and he thought, eh, that's odd. So he he's kind of thought it was odd, but he didn't think anything too much of it, so he left it there. But later he realized that that was likely the type of battery that one would put in a fancy digital camera, like maybe Julia's missing camera. He also read somewhere and I saw this too, that supposedly sitting the battery on a coin in the sun can help charge it or make it charge. I don't know if that actually works, but could it be that somebody at Makari Game Post was trying to charge her camera battery? Hmm, could it be? So Sebastian Tham arrives with his helicopter and he takes Ward to the body. Now, while they're flying toward the body, they actually hear on the radio that it wasn't a body, it was just a leg, which I get chills just hearing that. I can't imagine being on a copter and hearing that. Somehow, just a leg makes my blood run cold, colder than a whole body. I don't know. It's just bodies are supposed to be whole. I don't want to see just parts of them. So this lake was found one to two kilometers from the Tanzania border. And like I already said, it was in the middle of nowhere. The head game warden later claimed that they found the remains by following footprints from the Jeep. He said they followed the footprints to the river. Then they got in their cars and just started driving blindly. And while they were driving, they saw vultures in the sky and in a tree. So they drove toward the vultures and poof, that's where Julie's remains were. If that story sounds like straight bullshit to you, you're not alone, because I agree, and so do a lot of other people. Like, first of all, her father and Sebastian said there were no footprints around the Jeep, so how did these morons follow footprints to the river? Now, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt for a second and say they did follow some footprints to the river. Cool, cool, cool. But then you lose the footprints, because water. You have no way of knowing which way she went, but you're like, oh, we'll just start blindly driving in this direction and wow lucky them they just happened to drive in the right direction to see vultures and wow those vultures weren't over any other kind of dead thing in the park like a dead animal no they were over the human remains you happen to be looking for like these dudes should go play the lotto or something hit up a casino in vegas so they follow the vultures find the remains and yet these remains were magically not eaten by vultures. 
See, they obviously followed the special vultures that just go around checking for dead bodies, but not actually doing anything when they find them. Like, I'm just picturing that scene in Wizard of Oz where the coroner checks the Wicked Witch of the East and is like, she is not only nearly dead, she's 100% completely dead. That's apparently what these vultures were doing. Just just having a look-see. Like, this entire story makes no fucking sense. Go fuck yourself. That's how they found the remains. Not not because any of them knew where they were already. Mm-hmm. So at the scene, there was also this tall tree and a lot of bush. And there had clearly been a fire below the tree. And the fire had actually reached all the way to the branches that were about six feet off the ground. Which, that's a big fucking fire that's taller than a lot of humans. And there were drag marks in the dirt from the fire. For some reason, drag marks freak me out almost more than anything else. Like in any context, I cannot think of one context where I would not be scared to see drag marks. That's just, oh, I don't like it. So by this tree and the drag marks was the lower part of a human leg. It had been cut off at the knee. The leg was still clad in denim and also nearby was a lower jawbone, but the jawbone had been cut cleanly in half, so cleanly that one of the teeth had been cut in half. That is horrendous. I didn't know there was any kind of weapon that could just straight slice a whole skull cleanly in half, but apparently there is. So this is the scene her father comes upon. Drag marks, remnants of a fire, a lower leg, and part of a lower jawbone. This, I know I keep saying it, but this poor man comes across this horrendous scene, and you know what he started doing? He started digging through the ashes with his bare hands. And apparently, as he was digging through the ashes, the smell of burnt flesh filled the air. I've never smelled burnt flesh. Hope I never do. But I've always heard that it is very distinct, very strong, and very disgusting. So... I mean, can you just imagine? He is digging through the ashes of his dead daughter, smell of burnt flesh in the air, and he's just like crazed, crazed at digging. Because what else is he supposed to do? I mean, this, again, this is like a movie. And in the ashes, he found red flip flops, D rings, 35 millimeter film cassettes, and singed fabric with a zipper attached. In the thicket nearby the fire, Sebastian Tham found a small bottle of shampoo, charred sunglasses, and a lock of light blonde hair. Look at the pictures of Julie I'm going to post. She had blonde hair. They also found a piece of an orange towel, and her father was like, hey yeah, those match the orange towels we have back home. So clearly it's a towel she, you know, took from home. I want a set of orange towels. That's my favorite color. Now they also found a half-eaten can of can of food, and the can had hand had been written on on the side. Looked like Julie's handwriting. Now, this next part, this is the first time, one of the first places where we can say, "What the actual fuck, cops? What are you doing here?" So, like I said, the cops found the remains. You know, following vultures and imaginary footprints, they found the remains. John shows up with Sebastian, digs through the ashes also finds all this other evidence nearby. And the cops were literally just like, okay, cool, bye. And we're starting to get in the car to leave. I didn't pick up the bones, any of the other evidence. 
And of course, her dad was like, um, hello, aren't you forgetting something? Like, I don't know, body parts and other fucking evidence? Isn't this your job? And her dad's like, okay, well, I'm not going to leave pieces of my daughter out here. Fuck off. And this man started collecting the evidence himself. Like, just started picking up. He had to pick up his daughter's leg, her jawbone, burnt remains of her, while the cops just kind of stood there. Sebastian Tham actually took one of the plastic seat covers off of one of the seats in the helicopter and gave it to John as like a bag for him to put stuff in. Her poor father collected her body parts and other evidence and had to put it inside a plastic seat cover. But then here's the best part. After he did all that, he did all the fucking work. Then the cops were like, oh, hey, yeah, we'll take that big bag. I would have been like, fuck off. You were about to leave. And apparently her dad did say he had some misgivings about giving them the bag. But they were the police, so he did give it to them. One of those cops was a man named Simon McCullough. This guy is the chief game warden at the park. He is one of them that says, footprints, vultures, that's how we found the remains. We're going to get all into his business in part two, but I just want you to know right now, he's shady as fuck. I don't know if he had anything to do with her death, but I do know he's a liar and he is untrustworthy. Those are just the fucking facts. So yeah, Simon McCullough, shady as fuck, and these other wardens drove off with the plastic sheet cover full of Julia's bones and other items. Again, I watch Law & Order, so I'm basically a cop. And I'm kidding, honestly, obviously, but I could be in this case. Um, I don't think you're supposed to just mix all the evidence into one bag, right? Like, that's cross-contamination. Like, this, cool. This, this all sounds like a great, great detective work here. So now, her poor father had to call his wife and tell her that their only daughter was dead. And I know I keep saying it, but I'm going to say it again. This poor man, like, ugh. He went there like, okay, she's missing. I'm going to go find her, bring her home. No big deal. And now this. So he went home the next day. Like, he went there to find her. He found parts of her. He's like, I'm going home. Be with my wife and sons. So he left. He went back to England. So that day he went home, the day after the body was found. Something kind of strange happened that I, I felt like needed to be mentioned. This guy, Eris Grammaticus, who he runs a fancy high-end camp in the park. He, he's not important to the case. But he came back the day after the body was found, and he'd heard about it. I mean, it was making news all around the park. And he asked Simon McCullough what had happened. He had heard that the body that had been found had been killed by animals in the park. Because that's that's one of the stories that's get, that gets pushed around. And honestly, if most of the time if someone dies in the park, it's usually from the animals. So, you know, Eris says this to Simon McCullough. He's just like, hey, yeah, what happened? Crazy, I heard she got killed by animals. And Simon McCullough, the day after her body was found, told this man, oh, she wasn't killed by animals. That fire was set with gasoline. Um, nobody's done any kind of investigation yet. So how do you know that? Unless you were involved in it. Now, again, I'm not accusing him. I'm just putting that out there and I'm saying 
That's weird as shit. So, let's get to the autopsy. Find out what really happened, right? Now, what happens with this autopsy is wild. Just wait, like it's fucked up. Paulwell Dixon actually witnessed the autopsy for the family because, you know, they're all back in England, which I think that's so sweet. And what an honor to be trusted with that. Like if somebody asked me that, I would feel so honored, but I'd also feel so much pressure. I just, I don't know. So he goes and this autopsy is being performed by Dr. Adele Youssef Shaker. I'm going to be calling him Youssef because that's how he was referred to in the book I read. Youssef was actually an Egyptian refugee, but he is a competent pathologist who had performed around 100 autopsies at this point. So this guy knows how to do his fucking job. Keep that in mind. Now he says, verbally, while he's doing the autopsy, he says, the jawbone was clearly cut by a sharp instrument. He also said, based on the condition of the leg, her death had only occurred 36 to 48 hours earlier. This means Julie was alive for days after she disappeared, and she may have even been alive when her father arrived in Nairobi to look for her. That is heartbreaking. Every part of this is like a movie, a sad, frustrating movie, but a movie. Now, Yusef also determined that the bones had been burned after they were cut. He said that meant murder because, I mean, yeah, she didn't burn them herself after she was dead. So Yusef tells Paul he's positive he's, that it's murder, says he'll swear to it. The autopsy will become as official as soon as he writes up his report. And also, by the way, through dental records, they did positively identify the remains as Julie Ward. Now, the press in England picked up on this story around this time, and I think most of this English press in this case is nasty. Like, they're disrespectful as fuck. They were camped outside the Ward home. Like, that's a great use of your time, guys. Harassing a grieving family. Good job. Get a fucking life. Like, her family gave no comment to the press. They were waiting to hear how this murder was going to be investigated. Also, like, fuck you, I'm not going to talk about my murdered child. Get out of here. But then her family got some devastating news. They learned that Kenyan authorities actually weren't convinced that this was a murder at all. Um, what? The, the press said murder hadn't been ruled out. And I'm like, of course it hasn't been ruled out. She was murdered. The autopsy proved it. But there were some crazy theories already going around. Some reports were saying that she was killed by wild animals. I mentioned that one. And you know, this makes perfect sense because wild animals often barbecue their food after they kill it. You know, hyena barbecue, all that. Um, some reports said that she lit the fire and then collapsed into it from poisonous fumes. That doesn't even make sense, but okay. And that also does not explain why her bones were sliced in half. And then another theory that gets pushed for a while is that Julie committed suicide because I don't know if you know this, but people often sever their own limbs, cut their jaws in half, and then after death, burn their bodies from the afterlife. Did that all make sense? So the disgusting press picked up on all these theories She's all over the papers in England. Of course, they're not treating it as murder. They're just being sensationalized. Some of the headlines were calling her Lion Girl, Safari Girl. Now, those aren't mean, but they just seem so 
disrespectful. Like, this woman was murdered. Call her by her fucking name. Julie Ward. Not Jungle Girl, Safari Girl, whatever the fuck you're calling her. That's nasty. So her father, he heard this and he was like, oh, I don't fucking think so. And Mr. John Ward, the father of the century, got right back on a plane to Nairobi. He's like, nah, no. So he'd been home less than a week. Like, found her remains, came home. Less than a week later, he's like, nope, I gotta go handle my shit. Like I said, I love him. So when he gets back to Nairobi, he meets with the police commissioner. He's like, get out of here, I want the higher up. So he meets with the police commissioner, Philip Colonzo. Now, the book said that Colonzo was probably a good cop if he had been allowed to do his job, but there's a lot of corruption and a political bullshit at play here, so he doesn't really have as much power as we might think. So the book got really into all that, like the back sort of pulling the strings and who had the power and stuff. It's kind of interesting, not super relevant to the case, so I did leave it out a little bit. Philip Colonzo, the police commissioner, meets with John Ward and this other man named John Ferguson. And John Ferguson is actually from the High Commission office in Kenya. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds fancy. So now he tells them that he can't declare it a murder yet because they haven't gotten the report from the investigating officers. But he did say um, suicide's been ruled out, but that was it, which I mean, I guess that's something, but like it wasn't a suicide and her limbs were cut and burned. I think you have to call that murder, my dude. So now the Johns, Ward and Ferguson, they go to Yusuf's office to get this written autopsy report because he had said he would have the written report for them at 4.30. So they get to his office and Yusuf doesn't have the report. He tells them that some plain clothes came in and took it and all of his notes. Still, though, he he's still swearing like out loud. He's like, don't worry. It was definitely murder. I wrote the whole autopsy myself. I signed it in Arabic. Do not worry. This was murder. Now, if you're thinking this all sounds suspicious as fuck, you'd be right. Good job to you. The next morning, September 23rd, the police finally gave them the autopsy report, like gave her father it. And her father could not believe the autopsy when he saw it. It had clearly been altered. It said the cause of death was blunt injuries, subsequent burning. It said the leg was torn off, and it said the jawbone was cracked in two, and it said the weapon was a blunt instrument. Now, we all know those things are not right, but here's what's really crazy. Whoever altered this report, they didn't even try to hide it. Like, this was not a good cover-up. Like, where the report said the leg was torn, you could clearly see that it originally said cut, and then someone had typed three X's over the word cut, because this is a um, typewriter situation. They typed three X's over the word cut, and then typed the word torn above it. Not even in line with the original text. Above it. Well, that's not obvious at all. Then the same thing happened where the report said the jawbone was cracked into. It originally said cut. Um, where the report said blunt instrument, it originally said sharp instrument. These all just had X's through them. Somebody had typed right above it. Now, it's bad enough someone altered this report, but they didn't even try to hide it. Like, you didn't even write a new fucking report. And what's stupid, too, is they didn't change the part that showed fucking murder because it still said 
blunt injuries, subsequent burning. The subsequent burning clearly means it was people. So what was the point of altering it? You're stupid. So whoever did this clearly was not bright and also just did not give a fuck. Probably somebody kind of high up, maybe. So what happened to Yusef's original autopsy? Who changed it? Why? Well, what's going to happen with all this? Well, if you want to know, you'll have to turn tune into part two. That's right. Cliffhanger. I hope you enjoyed the beginning of our trip to Kenya. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can follow the podcast on Instagram. I always post pictures related to the case. It is Have Murder, Will Travel. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Have Murder, Will Travel Podcast. You can always send me a nice email at havemurderwilltravel at gmail.com. Tune in next week to hear how this case ends. Until then, don't forget to explore the world and stay alive. Bye.